please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. Can you imagine, you know, hiking through a volcanic landscape or being surrounded by the gleaming white sand dunes of White Sands National Park, seeing the sand grains up close, seeing the lava flow textures up close, and then blasting off, you know, 100 kilometers into the sky, looking out and seeing it look this big, but also realizing, wow, I hiked that. I actually understand how that lava flow is in place, or I actually understand about how 13,000 years ago, uh, this dry lake dried up, and that's where we get the gypsum white sands for white sands. Right. Uh, I, I just want to help people expand their experience or their encounter with what people sometimes call the overview effect um, that, that Frank White is, is famous for coining after interviewing lots of astronauts on how seeing Earth from space literally changes their psyche. Kirby Runyon is a Space Camp alumni and planetary geologist at the Planetary Science Institute. He has flown 16 parabolic flights, accumulating over an hour of time spent in weightlessness. He owns a technical and space tourism consulting company, guiding clients through parabolic flights and teaching future Virgin Atlantic astronauts about the geology they will see from space. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let you know what I find I grew up in South Central Michigan uh, in the mid to late 80s uh, and, and into the 90s, of course. And, uh, you know, grew up in rural Michigan uh, and didn't have a lot of connections to the space program. That being said, the closest city, Jackson, Michigan, uh, had a few uh, had at least one astronaut from there, uh, Al Warden from Apollo 15. He orbited the moon on Apollo 15. And so there was a small space connection, but it was, there wasn't a lot going on space-wise. Um, there was, uh, there, there's a now closed facility called Michigan Space and Science Center right there in Jackson, Michigan. And they had the Apollo 9 capsule. It didn't go to the moon. It was just in Earth orbit with the Apollo 9 astronauts. Uh, and they had one of the parachutes from Apollo 15. So I guess that parachute had been around the moon. And, you know, it was a small little... Uh, fun little science and space museum, but it's since closed. And, you know, I was, as a very young child, a bit just fascinated with space. You know, Challenger, the Challenger accident happened just a few months after I was born, so I don't remember it. But around the time that NASA returned the space shuttle flight to fleet, beginning with uh, space shuttle, I think, Discovery in uh, 1988 with mission STS-26, you know, the space shuttle would have been on the news a lot. And, you know, maybe my parents had the news on a lot. Maybe I picked up some space shuttle, you know, CNN sound bites from from that. But but I don't I don't know. I did go to the Michigan Space and Science Center. and There's pictures of me as a little kid uh, there. So maybe that 
that's where I got the space bug. But I've just always loved space. Uh, growing up in southern rural Michigan, though, Michigan, there really weren't a lot of other uh, space kids to talk about. So I was sort of, you know, kept my people knew I was interested in space, but there wasn't really anyone I could talk about it with. So uh, that, that was sort of my uh, beginning as a, as, a, as a space cadet. Did you want to be an astronaut early on? Was that kind of the, the goal? I did want to be an astronaut early on, and I still do. Was your first step towards that, was that when you attended space camp when you were a kid? Yeah, space camp was definitely a huge step toward that love of all things space. I uh, went to space camp uh, when I was 16 in the summer of 2002, and I went to Advanced Space Academy, and uh, I'm still friends with uh, at least two of the people who I met there, and we just saw each other the other last week in uh, Washington, D.C. And, you know, when I told people that I was going to space camp, they were like, oh my goodness, of course you are, Kirby, That, that just makes sense for you. Up until that point, it was the most incredible, intense, fun, educational, but educational in the fun sense, not in the boring sense of the word, uh, time I, I'd ever had. I remember um, the fact that I you know, got to put on a scuba tank and mask and go down in the underwater astronaut trainer, the UAT, and uh, pretend to assemble you know, a space station trust segment while floating sideways next to my buddy. Like, I can't believe I got to do that as a teenager. That was just incredible. And um, I was the commander for our simulated space shuttle missions. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I think I was also the flight director when we did like a, a rotation and I was in mission control for part of that. Uh, I remember doing orbit reboots on the International Space Station. And and at the end of the week, I actually got to win the Right Stuff Award, which I still have that medal. And that was uh, that was quite an honor. But um, I, I mean, I just soaked up information like a sponge. I know that they had, you know, some of the speakers they had there uh, talked about uh, hypergolic fuels, the fuels that ignite spontaneously when they mix uh, nitrogen tetroxide and dimethylhydrazine being those two propellants and talking about home and transfer orbits and different abort modes on the space shuttle, like uh, RTLS aborts, return to launch site, abort to orbit, AOAs, abort once around, um, and then the different landing sites, Zaragoza, White Sands. Um, you know, I just was a sponge for that information, just sucked it up. And we also got one of the original, uh, formerly German uh, rocket engineers. Um, his last name was, I think it was von Tiesenhausen. And he actually worked with Dr. Werner von Braun uh, on the Apollo lunar rover. So the cars that are still on the moon from Apollo's 15, 16, and 17 were something that he worked on. And it was just an absolute, I was just mesmerized, you know, having an actual living legend share his uh, stories from the Apollo program with us. Were your parents scientists? No, my parents aren't scientists. They're both in the humanities. Uh, my dad's a retired English professor. My mom's a musician and um, <laughs> a religion scholar. Uh, my grandfather, though, was an engineer. My mom's my mom's dad, uh, and he had a whole career working in radio consulting, putting up uh, radio stations all across the United States, and uh, being an expert witness for uh, uh, FCC uh, hearings. And so, you know, I got some of the technical exposure with my maternal grandfather. Um, and, and so he was he was one of the only people growing up that I could have at least technical conversations with. But other and, and my brothers and I, I have two brothers and um, all three of us have an interest, at least in technical areas. And so we could talk about that and we would all watch Star Trek and Star Wars together. So at least at least within my family, I had a little bit of a uh, space and technical connection with my brothers and my grandpa. So when I graduated high school, uh, I meant to go to a local university where my uh, dad taught. Um, and um, my, my plan was it, uh, 
was from the beginning to transfer out of there. And I wanted to major, get a bachelor's degree in astronomy or astrophysics, because I thought I wanted to, pr to pursue a PhD in astrophysics. Um, that plan started out um, and I did transfer, but I transferred to another school that offered a degree in physics and not astronomy. Um, astronomers I talked to said, if you want to actually do observational astronomy, you should actually get your bachelor's degree in physics, because there's a lot of physics there. Uh, it turns out I'm terrible at math. I worked my tail off for my physics degree um, and I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm terrible at math. I got all C's in physics, despite working really hard at those C's. And, and I opted not to get, go to graduate school for astronomy or astrophysics because I just, I, I wouldn't make it. Um, but I learned at that time that the scientists working on like the Mars rovers, which were really big at the time that I was in college, Spirit and Opportunity, and then um, uh, Mars uh, 2020 rover was on the horizon. Uh, and, you know, the Cassini orbiter orbiting Saturn flying by all those icy moons, that was going on a lot too. And I found a lot of those scientists that worked on the Cassini mission and the Mars rovers weren't astronomers, they were geologists. Hmm. And um, I found, you know, their planets are made out of rock. Right. right. And geology is the science that studies rock. So, OK, so there's such a thing called planetary geology. And so uh, after my physics degree, I took a couple classes um, in undergraduate just to get some more geology classes. Uh, and then I did a, a master's degree in planetary geology at Temple University in Philadelphia. And later on, I did a Ph.D. in planetary geology at Johns Hopkins University. Um, and then I've been working as a NASA funded planetary geologist ever since, and also just recently started a space consulting business. So can you tell us a little bit about what a, a planetary geologist does? Since you're not actually traveling to those planets, how, how are you studying the geologies there? In terms of my personal research that I do, I rely heavily on images taken by cameras on mostly robotic spacecraft around the solar system. Uh, a little bit from human spacecraft when, you know, astronauts have been to the moon. And so uh, there's a little bit of overlap between human space flight and planetary geology in terms of the Apollo astronauts and the upcoming Artemis astronauts. Um, but like right now, I'm actually doing geologic mapping on the moon uh, using images and other data that have mostly come from a spacecraft called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. That's a NASA spacecraft that's been at the moon since 2009. Um, I did a lot of my PhD uh, focused on Mars, and so I was using a camera on Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter called HiRISE, which stands for High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, and that's basically a spy satellite over Mars, and it can just like you can just like zoom in endlessly on the geologic landforms on the surface of Mars. And I was studying um, sand dunes and how sand dunes on Mars blow in the wind, and you can actually see the sand dunes move from year to year across the surface of Mars. And so I was uh, using the sand dunes as sort of like a natural weather station to see what the wind is doing. I, but you can also do laboratory experiments to to do uh, geological laboratory experiments. So one of the things that I study is the formation of impact craters on any planetary body, whether it's the moon or Mars or even asteroids. And so I actually use this uh, catapult. It's like a human-sized mousetrap, and it flings these sheets of gravel or sand or whatever we want to use. We recently used uh, crushed up chalk uh, to simulate the emplacement of what's called an ejecta curtain. And the ejecta curtain is all the busted up rock and gravel that gets scooped out of a crater as it's forming right after a meteoroid or an asteroid hit a planetary surface. Um, and so it gets flung out of a crater and then it lands on the ground. And it's if you are on the ground by the crater that just formed, it would be like this avalanche from the sky, this wall of busted up rock and debris flying at you really, really fast, hundreds of miles per hour. Uh, and it would it would slam into the ground and continue sliding outward, like I said, like this horizontal avalanche until it came to a rest. 
And that is one of the most common geologic processes across the solar system because every solid body from from small asteroids all the way up to the largest rocky planet, Earth, all have craters on their surfaces. And so uh, this is one of the most common ways that the surfaces of planets, moons, and asteroids get affected is with impact cratering and the emplacement of this ejecta, this avalanche from the sky. Um, and to, to, that's kind of a long way of answering your question, Ryan, about uh, how we do geology and other planets since we can't go there with minor exception. You know, one of my colleagues in planetary geology is actually an astronaut, Jack Schmidt, Dr. Jack Schmidt. He's the only Ph.D. geologist to have walked on the moon. He was uh, one of the astronauts on Apollo 17. He was the 12th of 12 men to have walked on the moon. Wow. And uh, and he's still I mean, the gentleman is in his 80s and he's still active going to science conferences and um, active on email and still publishing papers. He's he's quite a guy. Uh, and so, you know, he's he's the one exception of having to use robots to do uh, uh, planetary geology because he's actually the only uh, human lunar field geologist. So it's quite an honor to still get to uh, be associated with him. I love how excited you are about rocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. You know, rocks are actually an acquired taste for me because for me to be really interested in something, it kind of uh, takes a connection to space for me to be interested. And, for, you know, growing up, it never even occurred to me to connect rocks with space, really. Um you know, I, I I thought I wanted to study galaxies and supernovas, uh, but it turns out, you know, we'll never get to send spacecraft to another galaxy or a nebula even. Um, and within our lifetimes, we'll never send a spacecraft even to the nearest star, Proxima Centauri. Uh, it's, but within our own solar system, even though the distances are so vast from uh, hundreds of thousands to uh, billions of miles, um, we can we can still send at least robotic spacecraft on in, and they can get places in only a few years instead of a few centuries. Um, one thing I want to add about geology is that it's also a forensic science. Something natural happened to affect the way the landscape happened. The landscape doesn't look like it does just because something happened. <laughs> something built those mountains. Something dug that valley. Something made that riverbed. Something blew that sand. And geology is looking at clues left in the rock record and trying to reconstruct natural history, just like uh, an investigator might forensically investigate a crime scene and piece together what happened based on the clues that are present in front of them. So geology is pretty rare among the natural sciences in that it is also a forensic science. And that sort of forensic thinking really appeals to me. Uh, like I said, I'm naturally very bad at math, but I seem to be naturally pretty decent at that kind of thinking. So for my PhD, I did my research. Um, so I was a student at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, right. but I did the research for my PhD uh, at a university-affiliated laboratory called the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, or APL. It's not quite fair to say this, but the easy way to describe them is they're sort of like an East Coast JPL. Um, they fly a lot of planetary spacecraft uh, for NASA. There's a lot of planetary scientists employed there. And they're down the road from Baltimore in Laurel, Maryland, in between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. And so I did all my research for my Ph.D. there at APL, um, but graduated from Johns Hopkins University. And I actually worked at APL for five years after uh, finishing my Ph.D. Uh, so worked there as a NASA-funded um, research scientist up until uh, October of 2022. And since then, I've uh, switched affiliations to the Planetary Science Institute. 
And they're headquartered in Tucson, but I work remotely. But um, the way this works is that uh, scientists can write grant proposals to NASA saying, hey, this is some science I, I want to do. Here's how I think it contributes to the overall body of knowledge. And here's how much it wants to cost NASA if you want to you know, pay me and my institution to do that research. And so if NASA decides to fund a proposal, they'll send you uh, and your institution the money. And that actually pays your salary for the several years it takes to do that research and publish it in peer-reviewed journals and hopefully do some uh, public outreach like podcasts. Wait, so you're getting paid for this? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> the Intuitive Planetarium is an immersive digital dome theater experience that offers educational astronomy shows, live entertainment, and exciting theater experiences. The only one of its kind in the Southeast. The Intuitive Planetarium at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center offers an 8K digital planetarium and digital dome experience. Additional time tickets are required for Intuitive Planetarium experiences. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today. As, as many of your listeners will know, that was the first and only spacecraft to ever go by the, the planet Pluto. And uh, uh, <laughs> yep. dwarf, planet, dwarf planets are planets too. The planets, right? They're in the name. Um, <laughs> and so that that flew by in July of 2015. And I was still a graduate student at the time. But if you, if you rewind the clock a little bit to around 2010 or so, I was a master's degree student at Temple University. And I remember telling my master's thesis advisor, Dr. Alexandra Devatsas, I said, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to be in the room, wherever that is, when New Horizons flies by Pluto. And um, to, to make the story a little bit shorter, that's what ended up happening. But because I, I was able to volunteer uh, to help with, you know, helping with office duties with for the for the flyby team. And that actually got me in what was called the geology and geophysics or GGI room uh, at APL during the flyby, which is where the pictures came uh, when they came right down from the spacecraft. Um, so one of my humble brags is that uh, as far as I can tell, I was the first person or at least one of the first people to discover mountains on Pluto when we got our first really high resolution pictures coming back from the spacecraft. One thing that's uh, lost on a lot of people is that Pluto is one of about 130 similarly sized planets out beyond Neptune. And that's anything 500 kilometers in diameter and bigger. They're all small little planets. They're all round. And Pluto is the largest known member of that class of planets. So there's not eight planets. There's not nine planets in the solar system. There's like 150 and counting, um, most of which, which are really small around Pluto size. And that's the most common type of planet that formed in our solar system. That's And small icy dwarf planets are probably the most common type of planet that's formed around other stars, exoplanets. And what's crazy, Ryan, is that a lot of these dwarf planets uh, probably started off with liquid water interiors wow. in contact with like a hot rocky core because just the heat of a planet coming together from uh, basically uh, tens of millions of comets and asteroids mutually colliding, it's going to be warm on the inside of that, even though they're so far from the sun or their host star. So it's not out of the question that in the first half billion to billion years after one of these small icy dwarf planets formed that it could be habitable and that maybe life could have started in these things. So really, it's these icy dwarf planets three to five billion miles away from our own sun where uh, life could have gotten a foothold in the very earliest times of the solar system. 
If there are so many, why is it always just Pluto? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I think there's a huge opportunity for educators to uh, do a whole curriculum on the planets in our own solar system, not exoplanets, the planets in our own solar system behind Neptune, all of which are Pluto-sized and smaller. Uh, but many planetary scientists, such as myself, still consider them to be full-fledged planets, even though they're small. Um, the, the geology on Pluto is is far more active. Like, we have flowing glaciers on Pluto. We have wind-blown snowdrifts and sand dunes on Pluto. Pluto is as active geologically as Mars is, and Mars, up until this point, we thought was a fairly active planet. I mean, Earth is by far the most active, but um, Mars is really active, so is Venus. But but Pluto and these small icy planets are incredibly geologically rich and diverse. They have everything you want in a planet. And so I really think it behooves educators. And if anyone listening to this wants to partner on uh, <laughs> K-12 curriculum, I'd be happy to work with you on, on coming up with a curriculum for dwarf planets uh, beyond Neptune. Pluto just being the largest, but there's others. Eris, Makemake, Quayawar, Ixion, Varuna, Vanth. They've got really cool names, but uh, they're the most diverse and most populous type of planet in our solar system. And I think they deserve a lot more love. Do you think it's just because Pluto is the biggest of them? Pluto being the largest small planet is part of that. But I also think it's because of people's misperception about the International Astronomical Union's abuse of their power when they quote unquote demoted Pluto, uh, which by the way, that definition isn't even used by planetary scientists. So really? if planetary scientists aren't even using the quote unquote official definition, is it really official? Um, <laughs> so, so I think it's a perception of how science gets done. And uh, I think there's, like I said, there's all kinds of educational opportunity, not just for learning about the most common type of planet in our solar system and the galaxy, but also just in terms of understanding the scientific method, the scientific process, and how scientists communicate amongst uh, themselves. And having worked on New Horizons sort of dovetails into these other mission concepts that I've been involved with. Um, one of them was called uh, a mission concept called Neptune Odyssey. This is not a real mission. We did not actually build a spacecraft, but um, the National Academies of Sciences was doing a report for NASA to prioritize future large robotic missions into the solar system. These are missions that cost well over a billion dollars. One of those mission uh, concepts that we did, we wanted to look at what would it take? What would both what would it cost? What would the spacecraft have to look like and be capable of? And how long would it take to get there if we sent an orbiter to the planet Neptune? Now, Neptune's only been visited by a spacecraft once in August of 1989, and that was by the Voyager 2 spacecraft that launched well before then in 1977. We've never gone into orbit around Neptune with anything. It's Neptune, for all intents and purposes, is the same distance from the sun that Pluto is, at least right now, about 3 billion miles, um, or about 30 astronomical units. Um, the, you know, one astronomical unit or one AU being the distance between Earth and the sun. And so we looked um, and uh, our website, which maybe you can link to on the show page, uh, neptuneodyssey.jhuapl.edu, uh, shows that you could put like a Cassini-class spacecraft powered by uh, plutonium-powered radioisotope generators. It would take 17 years getting to, to want to go from Earth to Neptune. And then it would take about a year once you're at Neptune to get into a tight orbit around the planet and then do repeated flybys of Neptune's moon Triton, which is kind of a older brother, uh, not older brother, but maybe say like larger sibling to Pluto. Uh, Nept or Triton used to be its own dwarf planet orbiting the sun and then it got captured by, by Neptune. Mm. Um, 
And uh, so we would do repeat flybys of, of Triton and use Triton's gravity to, to change where the spacecraft could go in orbit around Neptune to fly by smaller moons, to fly by the rings of Neptune, to image Neptune from like high latitudes up near the North and South Poles, as well as around the equator, in a very similar way to how the Cassini spacecraft used the moon Titan's gravity to shape its orbital tour around Saturn. Um, and so I was uh, got to be the project scientist on on that mission. So a project scientist is someone who works uh, with with the scientists on one hand and the engineers on the other. And you kind of have to translate science ease into engineering ease and translate engineering ease into science ease and get engineers and scientists to talk to each other. Yeah. And so we wrote up that report, and it's also been published as a peer-reviewed paper. People can read it if they want to. It's linked to at neptuneodyssey.jhuapl.edu. On the side, you're doing space tourism consulting. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit, how, how do you end up in that? My mission in life is to not just learn about space, but to experience space. And I think that's one reason why Space Camp was so an amazing and incredible activity when I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, uh, in in 2020, during the pandemic, even I got to go on my very first ever zero gravity flight with the Zero Gravity Corporation, and I it, that was literally a dream come true and a prayer answered for me to get to experience weightlessness like that. Right. I had so much fun that I saved up some more and I went again just a few months later, and I brought <laughs> a friend with work for me. And there's video of me floating around, but they also do Mars gravity and, and lunar gravity parabolic arcs. And so you can hop around like the Apollo astronauts and like future Mars astronauts will in the lower gravity of Mars and the moon. Um, and I also have NASA funded research that does uh, gra- that does experiments in reduced gravity. And you know that catapult I mentioned right. that simulates the emplacement of crater ejecta? Well, we wanted to see how lower gravity affects that on, on Mars and the moon and also asteroids, which have even less gravity. And so we've actually done an experiment uh, on board the parabolic flight zero gravity airplane, and we're doing another one next month, hopefully. And uh, and because of my involvement and the enthusiasm for it, I, I've gotten to um, be a contractor for uh, the company Zero G and as a zero gravity coach. And now I'm working uh, to actually have curated experiences for people to go on what I'm calling the planetary gravity tour, where <laughs> they come to someplace really special like the Kennedy Space Center. They get a VIP tour uh we have a really nice dinner the night before and i'm gonna give a like a good half hour long presentation on the bleeding cutting edge of planetary solar system exploration and how their parabolic flight their reduced gravity flight the next day ties in with the environments on other planets and moons tell us a little bit about like being a person on board that plane like does it make some people sick? What does it feel like? You know, those the sensations, the kind of things that any of us can connect with. Yeah, that, that human that human experience is something I'm really after. So, it's, so that's a really great question. Thanks. People, I'd say 80% of people do just fine with regard to motion sickness. Okay. Um, and, and we always recommend that people uh, take medications. Uh, you can go to your doctor and ask for a prescription for the scopalamine seasickness patches that you wear on your neck. Uh, right. Those really work great. And even without them, most people still do just fine. Sure. Uh, if, if people do have some upset tummies, there are things that, that we can do to help them with that uh, once they're on the plane. You know, right off the bat, it does not feel anything like a roller coaster. That feeling of your stomach dropping out, that you, n- you never feel that. Huh. Um, you know, we take off, you're sitting, in a, you're sitting in the back of the airplane, and it's just like a normal airplane ride. You're sitting in a regular airplane seat, you take off, you have the whole seatbelt, uh, spiel, the whole oxygen <laughs> mask spiel. And then once we get up to our cruising altitude, the, the guests are invited to unbuckle and, and come up to the front two thirds of the airplane, which is just open and padded. There's there's no overhead bins. There's nothing. It's just wall, ceiling and padding. 
and uh, they take off their shoes and we have them all lay down on their backs and uh, the airplane starts to pull up in a steep climb and you're pressed onto the floor with almost two times the force of gravity, about two Gs, and it's not painful at all. We call that being on the pole. Then you can start to feel the weight come off. So the air, the pilot in the cockpit will start pitching the nose of the airplane down and you'll fall from 1.8 Gs, you'll go down to one G, and then it starts to feel really funny after that because the Gs just keep coming off after you go past <laughs> one G. And and you can liter- and, and you can just feel the weight melt off and, and you don't no one needs to tell you. You know something's different. And you can literally just tap on the floor with your fingers and your body will float up to the ceiling. Wow. Um, the very first time I experienced that, I, I couldn't believe the sensation. I, I tapped on the floor, I floated up to the ceiling, I looked down and this person floated just underneath me. And I, my initial reaction was like, oh no, I'm going to fall on her. But of <laughs> course I did it because we were both weightless. Um, but just seeing someone fly between myself and the floor the only appropriate reaction is to laugh. And, right. and so people are laughing and smiling uh, when they experience weightlessness. And I'll also mention this, when you're in weightlessness, you can perfectly relax every muscle in your body. Your body will naturally float into sort of a fetal position with your arms floating out in front of you. Like Ryan, you're not aware right now of how much stress you're holding in your face. But in, <laughs> in weight, all of us are, all of us are. In weightlessness, you can completely relax. And there's this relaxation that kind of floods through all of your body, including your face. And there's this perfect relaxation that's impossible to understand unless you've been weightless. Wow. And it is this, it's, it's extreme physical peacefulness and relaxation. It's, it's, there's floating in water doesn't even come close to that experience. Yeah. And there's also this disorientation effect where, you know, you can flip upside down and still feel right side up. It's it's and then to look down the length of the aircraft and to see people upside down to see the the chairs in the back of the airplane upside down to see like a like a a, a foam rubber little like squishy ball just float past and just pull it out of the air. Uh, it is a surreal surreal sensation. And when the gravity eventually does come back on, we get about twenty seconds of zero gravity every parabola, and we do it fifteen times. Um, and that that actually gives you more cumulative time in weightlessness than a suborbital spaceflight will. Wow. Okay. So you get about four minutes of weightlessness on the parabolic flight aircraft. You get three to three and a half minutes with Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin. Um, although with us, it's broken up into 15 segments. And then the gravity comes back on and you'll hear someone with a megaphone shout, feet down, coming out. And, <laughs> and that's to get your feet pointed down. The pilots are going to pull out of the dive and uh, you'll get back up to one... 1G, and then you, you, you then you feel the Gs just pile back on up to 1.8, and at that point, everyone is lying down on the floor again, eyes fixed on the ceiling. After we do 15 parabolas, it's like three lunar gravities and 12 zero gravities. We, we give everyone a snack because it makes you hungry, makes you thirsty, um, and then people get their shoes back on and sit back down, and from then on out, it's like a normal airplane ride where you, you come back in to land, except that you land at the same airport you took off from <laughs> instead of going somewhere. How much elevation do you do you shift? It's it's roughly, it's about 10,000 feet difference in elevation. Wow. You, you hit the top of your parabolic arc roughly between 32 to 35,000 feet, and the pilot pulls out of that, and you hit the bottom of your pullout maneuver, well, you're probably when you're pulling about the most G's, you, you bottom out at about 23, 24,000 feet. Wow. But but it's it's normal altitudes that airplanes fly right, right. routinely all the time anyways. Yeah, that's amazing. And in fact, almost literally any aircraft is capable of performing this maneuver. It's just that they don't. <laughs> 
So I also have gotten to do some work with Virgin Galactic. You know, we're in this era now where uh, people can pay a fair chunk of change to go experience spaceflight for themselves for three to three and a half minutes, going up to 80 to 105 kilometers or so above Earth. And uh, they both, they all, both Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin launch out of the American Southwest. A lot of Southern New Mexico is on display when you're on those suborbital space flights. And to help these private astronauts who are paying their own way to go to space, to help them understand what they see out the window when they're in space, I've, I've started taking groups of them on trips to New Mexico <laughs> using my geology PhD and my enthusiasm for rocks, as you say, to show them up close and personal, like literally in their face, the geologic landforms that they're going to get to see from space. So in early 2022, we took a group of these Virgin Galactic future astronauts um, and we went to quite Sands National Park, which is very visible from space. Uh, We went to a few other volcanic landscapes around southern New Mexico to help them understand what they see. So what's next for you? You're still at the Planetary Science Institute. What's what's next? Uh, yeah, thanks. So so what's next is I'm going to keep doing the planetary geology research, writing NASA grant proposals, uh, doing research on the moon and Venus and uh, asteroids. And then on the uh, consulting side, I'm, I'm hoping to do more geology you can see from space tours in New Mexico. <laughs> and by the way, a lot of that geology in New Mexico is very similar to geology on the moon and Mars and other places. So it's, it's also what we call a planetary analog. And it's a way to explore the planet's on Earth. So I'm hoping to do more of these tours. I'm hoping to do um, more parabolic flights with the Zero Gravity Corporation, hoping to do more planetary gravity tours. And I can't say too much, but I might be having a documentary TV show come out in the next several years. So, uh, edutainment. Train like an astronaut and get lost in space at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Shuttle simulator programs are available to try your hand at piloting the shuttle and is based on both the past and the future of space exploration. Your team of up to four participants must work together to land the shuttle and bring the crew safely home. Museum admission is required. Find out available times, prices, and more at rocketcenter.com and get ready to blast off. No matter what it takes, I at some point, and I don't even need the title astronaut. I don't I don't need that title. I just want to go at least 50 miles up and and ex- and I've experienced weightlessness on airplanes, but I, right. I want that experience of and this sounds cheesy, but communing with the cosmos, being separated from Earth and getting that sensation of what it must be like to be like a citizen of the cosmos and not just planet Earth. I couldn't strap in fast enough, yes. For students, or I'll even say for grownups looking for a career change, it's persistence, persistence, persistence. And if you know what you want and you want this thing more than you want anything else, um, don't let setbacks and full out blockages stop you. Uh, Surround yourself with people who are encouraging, who can share your enthusiasm or at least encourage you in your enthusiasm. Surround yourself with people smarter than yourself and don't be intimidated by that. One thing that I do on my NASA grant proposals is I bring people on who I know are smarter than me and I try not to let that bother me because uh, it takes teamwork. So so don't be afraid of of collecting people around in your circle of influence, people who are smarter than you. Uh, Put yourself out there, go network, go to events and conferences where you don't know anyone and just walk up to somebody and introduce yourself. It's scary, but that works and people are flattered by it actually. So I would say a lot of it comes down to personal connections and persistence, uh, much more so than intelligence, raw intelligence. 
You don't have to be super duper smart. Also, uh, one thing for the students and anyone looking for a career change is that a master's degree or a PhD in the sciences, you don't have to pay for it. You actually get paid to go to graduate school. So that can help uh, if you think it's too expensive to get a PhD. Well, it turns out you can do it for your job. Hopefully that can be encouraging to some people hoping to, you know, pursue the pursue space sciences. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let